We implemented many ITIL processes. The world's most practiced method for project management. ITIL has been um, a catalyst in my career. Hundreds of thousands of people with a Prince 2 qualification. I've seen ITIL help organizations be more successful. The Axelos Podcast, bringing best practice directly to you. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Axelos Global Best Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Akshay Anand, uh, and with me is an amazing panel, probably the best panel we've ever had on this show. Uh, the best way to describe this panel is by saying a professor, an industry analyst, and a philosopher walked into a bar, because we really do have a, a professor, and that is Dr. Karthik Hosanagar. Uh, he is a, a professor of uh, technology and digital business and a professor of marketing at uh, Wharton School uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, his research work has focused on the digital economy, uh, in particular the impact of uh, things like analytics, algorithms, uh, and technology, uh, so internet media, uh, the way digital organizations market uh, their services and so on. Uh, He's, uh, he's also a university chum of mine. We went to Bitspilani uh, together and we had a chance to reconnect uh, last December where we caught up on some of the things we're doing. And I thought uh, he'd make a, a really interesting uh, guest on our podcast. He's also the author of a book that I'm currently uh, reading through. But instead of hearing my incomplete version of it, Karthik, would you like to take like 10 seconds to, 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 to plug the book that you've been uh, that you just published? Yeah, sure, Akshay. First of all, uh, thanks for having me uh, on the podcast. Uh, yeah, so the book is called uh, A Human's Guide to Machine Intelligence. Now, if we read the news, uh, we've all heard of the term algorithms, computer codes that uh, control much of what we do on the internet, and which recently seem to be landing us in uh, some uh, jams. So, for example, Elections are swayed by newsfeed algorithms. Markets are manipulated by trading algorithms. There's talk of uh, women and minorities being discriminated by algorithms. And, and in the UK more recently, there was the uh, controversy around algorithms for grading. Um, and That's right. Yeah, a lot of conversations about algorithms and uh, you know, uh, will they have a negative impact? Do they have a negative impact? And more importantly, what are we supposed to do to stay in control of algorithms that are making a lot of decisions? So the book is uh, really about that. Uh, you know, algorithms uh, provide huge value to our lives, but they come with huge implications to our personal and our professional lives as well. And we need to understand uh, them and we need to figure out a way to stay in control. And the book offers us a way in. And uh, presumably available through um, Amazon, Kindle, um, Apple Books, etc. That's right. So available through your favorite channels. So whether it's uh, Amazon or or Apple or you know your local bookstore, uh, hopefully you'll find the book in all these channels. Excellent. Yes, absolutely. Support your local bookstore, people. It's very important. Um, moving on, we've got uh, Kashyap Kampela. Uh, Kashyap is also somebody I went to university with, and it was quite strange how when we got together last December, I found so many people who are now talking about uh, the topic of artificial intelligence. Uh, since graduating and, and most recently, Kashyap is the CEO of an industry analyst firm called RPA2AI, uh, and he focuses on, on advising uh, global corporations and uh, VC as well as private equity firms on various artificial intelligence related matters. So uh, on um, uh, up and coming startups, on the use of enterprise AI, on the ethics of AI and so on. Uh, and Kashyap is also the co-author of uh, a book, which again, I, I have not read Kashyap, I'm, I'm sorry to say, uh, but I should. Uh, so for our, for our audience, would, would you mind taking a, a few minutes to talk about the book? Thanks, Akshay. And yeah, uh, our book is called uh, Practical Artificial Intelligence, an Enterprise Playbook. So after uh, you've read Karthik's book and got the big picture of uh, artificial intelligence, this you should move to this book, which is uh, how do you really build an effective strategy or run an AI project in your company? So AI projects are structured and run very differently from traditional IT projects, but they can still go wrong and they go badly wrong. So this book equips you with all the essentials that uh, will help you steer in the right direction. So this has lessons and guidelines from the real world, 
that can help you, your project and your career to succeed. So this provides an understanding of the different forms of AI, how they work, how to build a strategy and run a project. It also looks a little bit about the dark side of AI and to help you manage algorithmic bias and avoid costly mistakes. So it's available again uh, at your favorite bookstores and Amazon and other uh, e-commerce marketplaces. Excellent. And uh, last but certainly not least is uh, a potential, uh, is, is an up and coming author. I know he's been working on a book on a related topic for, for a few months now, uh, but that is uh, Kaimar Kuru, uh, who should be a familiar name to many of you who followed Axelos and ITIL for some years now. Uh, Kaimar most recently was the Minister of Foreign Trade and Information Technology for the Republic of Estonia. Uh, prior to that, he, uh, as I said, was working at Axelos, where he was the head of product strategy and development, uh, sitting across both the project and portfolio management uh, uh, best practice guides, as well as ITIL. Um, outside of his work in uh, ITSM, Kaimar has also uh, worked with and advised uh, several IT companies like Skype, Epicor, and Oracle. Uh, He's published some really great articles on Medium, uh, and I encourage you to, to read those articles on Medium. He's been a frequent keynote speaker at various uh, events. Most recently, he's been talking about uh, the ethics of AI and the, the use of AI by product companies. Uh, and yes, he is our resident philosopher as well. So welcome, Kaimar. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. <laughs> so uh, I think that the first place we can start is by Defining the term AI, uh, artificial intelligence, it's a, it's a loaded uh, uh, term. Uh, I, I realize there's probably a computer science degree's worth of definitions and sub-definitions and so on. But I, I, I venture, I had as a hazard a guess here that when most people think of artificial intelligence, they're going to think of Skynet, right? They're going to think of the Terminator movies because that's the most obvious example of that. But what is artificial intelligence from our perspective of, of enterprises, of uh, technology? Is it is it just advanced algorithms or is it something that truly more, um, dare I say, sinister? Uh, Karthik, let's go to you uh, first as from, from the, what does the research tell us? What, is the, what does science tell us? Yeah, I think, you know, first of all, it's a very young field, uh, artificial intelligence. You know, the field began really shortly after the World War um, when, a bunch of researchers, really uh, a dozen people got together at Dartmouth to start a new field, which is focused on, can you make computers think? There was a famous paper that uh, computer scientist and mathematician Alan Turing wrote, which is, can machines think? And that was really the question. Um, and the field is about, how do you get computers to do the kinds of things that require human intelligence? So for example, to be able to understand language, to recognize people's faces, to navigate the physical world, uh, to be able to learn and so on. So that it's artificial intelligence is as simple as that. It's all around us. You know, someone once used the phrase that uh, when it works, it's no longer AI. And so really what that means is that, you know, we have this imagination uh, or we imagine AI to be this really fancy thing, but you know, it's about mimicking human intelligence. And so the moment we see it working, we stop thinking of it as being this fancy AI. Uh, certainly in terms of what's around us, if you look at uh, Alexa or Siri on your phone, uh, you're, you know, using AI in, um, in terms of conversing with this device and it's understanding what you're saying. So that's natural language recognition. Um, you, you know, AI is being used uh, certainly in Google search uh, in terms of figuring out what you're doing. It's being used in your Gmail to figure out whether an email should be labeled as spam or not, or to figure out how you might want to respond to an email. So this is the email uh, auto-reply suggestions. So, so it's all around us. We all use it in various ways. So in that case, uh, I guess, how do we distinguish when something is um, artificial intelligence versus say, vendor hype uh, that we see a lot uh, in the industry. Uh, and Kashyap, I think as our, as our resident industry analyst, I think this is possibly something that you have many opinions on. Correct, I mean, this is a fantastic question. Uh, I have a very fun job. 
tech vendors make a lot of tall claims about artificial intelligence and my job is to put these claims under scrutiny i get paid to do that so i kick under the tires look under the hood to see if it's really a differentiator there or it's just a marketing pitch so there is this thing saying that uh, if it is uh, written in python it is uh, machine learning but if it is written in powerpoint it's uh, artificial intelligence <laughs> <laughs> so i like that you know, so broadly it's about uh, let's say we're talking about a specific product or a tool or a software capability can it see if it can see and it can reasonably figure out what's going on sensibly respond to it, its computer vision image recognition can it read text and understand and again sensibly respond then it's natural language processing can it hear and maybe transcribe it then it's again speech recognition plus natural language processing so can it analyze a lot of data look for patterns in it then it's machine learning so there is one more thing that i didn't cover can it move can something move not because you programmed it but can it respond to its environment and move around sense and respond that's a robot so these are definitely broad uh, disciplines of artificial intelligence but i personally think these days it's uh, not essential to make that distinction between ai and machine learning too scrupulously in the initial days of uh, artificial intelligence a lot of it was uh, explicitly programmed rule based expert systems that's what uh, symbolic logic systems that's what artificial intelligence meant but today machine learning and particularly one field of machine learning deep learning really has been dominating because of the advances in technology because of the advances in the computing power because of the availability of high amount of data so machine learning is this approach where you learn from experience experience here refers to data so instead of uh, explicitly programming rules you you throw a lot of computing power to throw the algorithms at the data and they recognize patterns in that so that's uh, machine learning true definitely there is a lot of hype and again there is one more saying which says uh, that when fundraising it's artificial intelligence when recruiting it's machine learning but when it's uh, actually implementing it's linear regression so there is a grain of truth in that truth in that as well Fair enough. I I didn't think we were going to come to the cynical portion of the of the show until several minutes later. But clearly, we've this is the realistic picture. <laughs> <laughs> um, Kaimar, you you I think wrote an article, or uh, maybe I I saw a talk, a keynote talk, or a conference talk that you gave where you explored some of the distinctions between different types of of um, artificial intelligence. And I was wondering if if you could quickly recap that. Um, and, and and I'll start off by by saying by asking the question as a from a layperson's perspective, is is it really just really really complicated workflows that we're talking about when we label something artificial intelligence, or is there a degree of uh, dare I say it um, sentience involved? Okay, so so uh, kind of there's three three main types or three types of AI we. We talk about usually the narrow AI, general AI, and super AI, from single domain application to uh, to something that is that is smarter than humans. But in terms of of the definition, well, if I've been I've been going with the definition that AI is the capability of a machine to uh, to imitate uh, intelligent human behavior, um, and machine learning is more about learning, and AI is more about behaving. But at the same time, anyone who has worked in the ITSM industry for some time or, or any technical industry or kind of being maybe even more cynical has been alive for more than 10 years um, ha has seen that the well, what things are or how things are written down is not necessarily how they're perceived. So, uh, it, well, as an example, what's written in ITIL uh, for many people doesn't really matter because they have heard something else as 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 being called ITIL, therefore that's that's why it's, what what ITIL is, and and with AI, if you look at uh, what what has been happening with AI for the past let's say five years or so, um, it has become a buzzword. It has lost its meaning. Uh, the, the closest meaning or kind of the, the closest definition of AI right now is perhaps uh, automation. So anything that is that has anything to do with with automation. Is suddenly AI because you can sell that as AI. Um, but at the same time, when you look at um, the attempts to to regulate AI, 
and, and look at the definitions of, of how AI is seen or what's the scope of AI, then in those terms, AI is all of computing, all of it. So in, in some ways, I would say that I think perhaps in a society, we haven't yet really answered many basic questions that, that do need an answer. So we're kind of going back to going back and trying to answer them now using the, the very wide term AI, but actually we're talking about computing of, of any sort. Let's stay with that for a bit. You, you said that we haven't answered some very basic questions. What sort of questions are we, are we talking about here? We are talking about, well, essentially, when we combine automation with, with, with machines, on one side, we're talking about the, um, uh, let's, let's put it, let's say, more philosophical questions of uh, agency, for instance. Agency as not in, in an organization, but agency as, as an actor's agency in a system. And, uh, and, and uh, Sorry, let me stop you there. So for people yes. who, who aren't familiar with that term agency, well, very simply put, whether you are in a, in a position to do something or, or make decisions about something. Okay. So either you have agency or you don't, either you're an active player uh, in the system or um, what was the phrase, non, what, what was the character in games? Um, NPC, I think, is the, the short term for that. Non-playable character. Non-playable character, exactly. So they don't have agency. Right. Whereas the, the other characters that are led by people in the game do, and, and also in life, it's, it's kind of similar. So do we, do we believe that machines can have agency, which actually goes back to, do we, do we believe whether people have agency, uh, which kind of leads us to determinism and so on. So that, that's, that's one side of things. The other side is, is the, the question uh, about what is fair. And this is, a, this is a discussion that comes up when we, when we talk about AI bias, uh, whatever that means for, for different people. Um, so what is actually fair and, and how do we know that when we, when we get a result out of something, it is fair or what it should be? And who defines what is correct and who defines what is fair? And there are many gray areas in societies where we have figured out how to live and survive for centuries without really answering many basic questions. And now with, with AI, as we use more and more of automation to, uh, to make decisions or help us make decisions uh, by giving us input to which way to go, we're kind of facing this challenge of, well, but, but is, is this the way how it should be? And then what, what should be? And who will tell us what should be? And, and if we see results that we don't like, is it, is it that just, I don't like them, so I need to do something about them, or is it is it good or bad for the society? Um, so yes, kind of the, the, the in some ways the, the binary approach of computing is forcing societies out of the gray zones, and I would say that for most part, we when we look into those gray gray zones, we don't really like what we see. I remember a couple of years ago, Google, or was it last year? Maybe a couple of years ago, Google announced a, a feature of, I think, Google Voice, wasn't it? Where you could ask Google to make a, a, something like a restaurant reservation for you. And the, the automation in the back end would call that restaurant and make the reservation. So the person accepting the reservation or, or the agent accepting the reservation at the other end wouldn't know that they were talking to a machine. And I, I remember there's a lot of debate about whether this is quote-unquote, fair. Um, uh, I suppose, uh, Karthik, uh, I, I know this is something that you talk about in your book, but when we when we talk about fairness uh, or fair use of these algorithms and, and so on, is it is it a moral question? Is it an ethical question? Is it a legal question? Some combination thereof? Yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting and complex question. I think it's a, it's all of them. Um, I think as the capabilities of AI have really gone up dramatically over the last, let's say, 10 years, uh, where you can deploy AI in, in contexts that um, are high-impact contexts where um, they could be autonomous, 
um, or um, as Kemar put it, um, you know, we might not have agency, meaning we don't, we are not uh, playable actors, or we're, we're we don't have the same level of control. Um, yeah, there's all these questions that come up. What do we know about who is making the decision for us, or who we are interacting with? What do we know about how those decisions are being made? And those decisions might affect us. For example, you apply for a job, and it's possible that an AI-based resume screening software decided whether you get invited for a job interview or not. In the US, in many courtrooms, uh, these kinds of systems are being used to predict the likelihood that a defendant will reoffend, which ultimately the judge uses to figure out whether somebody gets a five-year sentence, 10-year sentence, gets a bail, does not get a bail, and so on. Or, you know, again, you look at a setting where doctors are making treatment decisions um, and in insurance or loan applications are approved by these kinds of software. And in these kinds of really critical uh, settings, having a system make decisions, first of all, most of the times we don't even know whether an AI or a human is making the decision. If it's an AI, we don't know what was, what is it based on? What kind of data are, we, are, are they using? Has it been audited by somebody else? Do I have some level of control? Is there a recourse? Uh, I'll come back to the A-levels in, in UK uh, and where an algorithm was used to figure out uh, student grades. And here again, was there uh, you know, sufficient transparency for, uh, for people in terms of how the grades were computed? Was there a system in place where people could appeal? So I think there's a lot of questions and it comes down to moral, ethical, legal, everything. And that's why over time, while the technologists will continue to play a very important role in AI development, uh, now we're going to start to see everyone from social scientists to philosophers to lawyers and many more and regulators, all of them uh, partake in this. So, um, steering the conversation away from the, the doom and gloom aspect of, of uh, the use of the impact of AI, uh, what are some of the, the instances in which um, we might encounter AI? I mean, I know, Karthik, you referenced uh, Siri and Alexa and so on, uh, but what about within the workplace? Um, can we point to certain things and say, look, this is starting to be, be powered more, more and more by, by AI. Um, and Kashyap, I think this is possibly something that you can help uh, shed some light on. AI is like a really ubiquitous uh, in, in many ways. I say that the future of uh, AI is here, but like, like future, it's uh, not uniformly distributed. So if, if you take examples uh, such as uh, the very simple examples, wherever there is paperwork involved, for example, account opening forms, know your customer forms, or different types of paperwork that we have to do. All of that can be digitized, automated, and be read by bots. So there is this uh, segment uh, of the enterprise software segment called robotic process automation, which really is taking about all these mundane activities and automating and digitizing them and making them end-to-end -end, uh, workflows without human intervention. So that that's one element of it. And there are examples uh, in e-commerce and digital experiences, for example. So there is a, a big part of uh, AI and machine learning systems is really recommender systems. So there is a joke that goes, uh, a machine learning algorithm walks into a bar and the bartender asks, what would you like to drink? So the algorithm replies, what everyone else is having. So that's a recommender system in a nutshell for you. You go to Amazon to buy something, it says, okay, these are my product recommendations. You go to Netflix, these are the movie recommendations that you should see. So the same concept of recommender systems, you take the example of uh, IT infrastructure management, automation of uh, service desk requests, machine learning algorithms are able to categorize them and appropriately route them to the right group for resolution. Being able to mine uh, existing knowledge bases within the organization to surface the right insights to the right agents. So this, there are potentially applications of AI in every industry, in every function, be it human resources, be it uh, 
marketing, be it finance, etc. So in that context, I would look, like to go back to the previous discussion, which had a lot to unpack. Essentially, if I were to sum up what Karthik and Kaimar have said, they said like AI systems contain multitudes. There are ethical principles, moral choices, human biases, and social norms. Right now, mostly by default, but we should make it by design. So it's clear that even the enterprise use cases that I talked about, we should not uh, leave the job. Whose job is it? I mean, we should not leave the job of codifying ethical choices into AI systems by default to system developers. So we should bring in uh, multidisciplinary expertise from legal folks, from HR folks, from ethicists to make sure that we make AI as inclusive as possible. Right now, the way these are being developed, be it uh, applicant tracking systems in, uh, in HR screening for jobs, they, they sort of tend to roll back some of the progresses we've made in terms of becoming more inclusive in the workplace. I'll stop there. I'll come back to some of these themes, themes later. Yeah, if if it's okay, uh, Akshay, I'd just like to add maybe, you know, some other yeah, sure. examples. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, you know, I, I think most of your listeners would be familiar with the setting where, you know, we go use a credit card at a store and within two seconds, we get a text saying, hey, uh, is this a legitimate transaction? So that's uh, probably a, a machine learning system that's uh, determining whether this transaction is fraudulent or not within financial services companies. Uh, transcription is another area where AI is playing a role, uh, medical transcription, or you, know, you might wanna transcribe this call um, and AI plays a role there. In call centers, again, you know, we're all used to this experience of calling and then waiting for a long time to speak to a human. And sometimes the, the scope of the call is not that complex and can be addressed by AI. So, you know, I go back to this point that I made earlier that it's all around us and we're not necessarily always acknowledging that uh, it's AI, but in the workplace, it's there. I mentioned resume screening. So there are very few industries where AI isn't already playing a role. Hi, everyone. Akshay here. Sorry to interrupt your regularly scheduled podcast program. But as you know, every month, we'd like to bring you a little vignette or a shout out to someone in our global IT or ITSM community who's been doing some interesting things or has something interesting to say. And so this month, we'd like to introduce you to Omar Fayez, who lives in Bangalore and is the CEO and founder of Remo Software. Omar and I have known each other for many years and admire him deeply for making that massive leap of faith many years ago when he quit a, a successful and stable job to start Remo Software. And uh, without further ado, let's hear from him. My name is Omar Fayaz and I work for a company called as Remo Software. It's a data recovery and data management company based out of Bangalore, India. Uh, I'm the founder and uh, CEO of Remo. I uh, basically manage all the overall direction of the company, product strategy and marketing. You know, it was uh, basically I was working for a software development company earlier. And when I decided to go on my own, I never had enough uh, resources to sustain operations or start off the business. Uh, neither I was having a very viable uh, business plan in place uh, of what I wanted to do uh, to get uh, you know any investor attracted to it. But uh, unless I would have moved off of my comfort zone uh, from a very easy uh, going job, a very successful career and a well-paying job, I couldn't have figured out a way. So, uh, you know, one fine day I just quit and started off. I had a team of freelance developers and started doing some application development. Uh, it was it was really tough to sustain initially, uh, but we we kept doing the things that we kept doing. You know, we pulled along and uh, during this stage, it was just, uh, you know, we were focusing on work and uh, there was, uh, you know, we, we, we for about six months or so, it was just work and nothing else, you know, we don't have, we didn't have any you know, work-life balance as such, uh, but it took me like six years to properly get into a work-life kind of a balance. Uh, for people who are starting off uh, their own businesses or they are in some stage of uh, their 
already their existing businesses i i always uh, suggest them persistence you know because um, you know if if today you look at me from where i am you know some people think that i'm i've done really well for myself and something that you know i could have done better but you know i also sometimes swing between these two ideas of you know whether i've done well or i, I could have done better but at any day if you look at it i tried and i'm still trying so i would say persistence any day it will pay off and uh, with regards to managers you know your your team end of the day requires good guidance and a free hand to explore so we as a company we have always taken an approach uh, in terms of our work environment and you know we don't work in continuous pressure we don't have this thing of everyday deadlines uh, kind of an environment so i feel that team really performs well in when you have this kind of relaxed situations and relaxed conditions so i'm i'm available on uh, linkedin you can search me with my first name and last name it's o m e r f a i y a z hey so this is akshay again i hope you uh, enjoyed that and now let's get back to your regularly scheduled podcast so at the same time though uh, as as a, as a person i don't acknowledge electricity i don't acknowledge water or any of the utilities i use so you know i i acknowledge what i what i'm able to do you know i'm able to switch the lights on i'm able to wash my hands etc so from that perspective karthik what you just said is quite interesting do we have to acknowledge the presence of ai or is it more about i don't know the effects that it has that we that we really more concerned about so it's not about use of ai it's the impact of that use that is the greater concern yeah i think the way i would uh, approach that and i think it's a really interesting way you put it yeah i think most of us don't uh, really think much about electricity um, and some of ai and in fact a lot of ai will eventually end up there for for now there is novelty uh, to most of the ai applications but as i was saying earlier you know what many people say once it's working it's no longer ai and so once these things are all working and they and it becomes second nature we're not going to think uh, a lot much about it so a lot of ai today is going to end up as electricity where it's is just second nature for us there are some of it that will not and the portion that will not is that ai is able to get into something that is uh, very fundamental about being human and that is uh you know about being able to think about being able to make decisions and it's about human consciousness and so the fact that these systems are making decisions that affect us either decisions uh that impact our lives or impact other people's lives i think that is a portion that uh because it's so fundamental about you know what is it that makes us human because at the heart of you know when we're saying can machines think we're getting into the core of who we are um and so i don't think all of ai will ever end up like electricity because electricity doesn't make us question what makes us human uh, ai does and ai will that's a, that's a, that's an interesting perspective um but i i want to come back to something that kashyap uh mentioned a short while ago he he used a very interesting word which is bias and i know kaimar you and I, you and i have had quite a few discussions about this concept of 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 bias so let me ask you uh, ask you this and i'd be interested in in other perspectives from from kashyap and kathik you guys as well um that bias comes from the mind of the the technologist the developer or the person who is capturing the data sets which are being used to feed these machine learning algorithms and and so on so can we say that it's the ai itself that's biased so when we're looking to uh, i and i struggle to use this word but bear with me when we're looking to solve this problem uh, and i recognize this problem is way too complex to have a singular solution but is the issue with the biases inherent to the human nature of the person who created the algorithm who created the dataset or is it something else is it something more systemic that we're talking about when we talk about biases 
so that's that's one thing that uh, I'm interested in, Kaimar. Uh, but the other question, which perhaps deserves a, a little bit of of, of, of airtime as well, in a talk that I saw you give last year, I think it was Lean Agile Scotland 2019. You talked about the trolley problem and how the trolley problem was, was an interesting manifestation of this very debate. And so when AI makes a decision in the trolley problem, and we may have to explain what the trolley problem is for, for our listeners, but when the AI makes a decision around the trolley problem, is that effectively reflecting the bias of the developer who created the AI? Okay, so that, that's all a combination of, of, of topics that would take probably around 10 podcasts uh, to cover. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, gonna to pull on the thread uh, that, you, that you kind of gave me with one of the words that you used, which was complex. I'm going to partially link to what we discussed before. Uh, so kind of the, uh, the transparency of AI or kind of whether it's visible or whether we acknowledge this at all, uh, which kind of links to the complexity thing, which then links to the, the bias uh, topic as well. So in terms of kind of you, you gave the example of, of water or electricity, for instance, and, and think about the, the way we interact with with stuff that is around us. So with, with water, so we have the water supply at home. And, and when you when you run a bath and you open the taps and, and let's say that you forget that it overflows and uh, it, it creates some damage or causes some damage in your house. So what do you do next? Do, do, you, uh, do you blame uh, the, the bath? Do you blame the taps? Do you blame the water? Do you blame the water company? Or m maybe you look in the mirror and, and kind of acknowledge that maybe it was you who, um, who messed it up. So with, with some things that are around us, they are, they're more predictable or sometimes they're very predictable. And they usually, they, they work the way we expect them to work, uh, which is kind of part of the, the ordered world that we, that we understand. Uh, with machine learning, AI, and the, like say automated decision-making, we are moving very deep into the unordered world where this kind of based on the, the results of, of machine learning decisions are being either made or proposed, which are very difficult to backtrack. And, and we don't know, we don't always know where it's, or it's difficult to understand how the machine came to that conclusion. And we also don't necessarily know what it means to, to act on that because the machines don't necessarily analyze or don't always or don't ever analyze the the impact of decisions because there's too much too much unknown so kind of the the the, the biased part of this or, or kind of, so the decisions that are being proposed or decisions made or the actions uh taken uh, are they biased or not and, and who influences them so one of the one of the parts of, of of my presentation from from last year or the year yeah last year end of last year kind of the i think in some ways, we have approached the topic of bias in the wrong way because it's not really, it doesn't seem to be leading anywhere. And that one of the reasons for that is based on the definitions of the words that we use, being biased requires consciousness and agency and algorithms do not have consciousness, nor do they have, do they have agency, which means that algorithms themselves, they cannot be biased. But as you also said, people are. And it's it's not just the developer; it's 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 all the people who are involved in all the steps. So the source data selection, data gathering, data selection, uh, the training data that we use, uh, the way we train the algorithm, uh, the way we interpret the results—all of that is biased. Uh, the impact of decisions that we make based on that is biased. The decision itself is biased, and also the questions that we ask are, are biased. So in some ways, I would say that when you use machine learning, the only thing that perhaps is not biased is the result. The result is what it is. The, the proposed decision based on machine learning, it is what it is. It's, it's um, influenced by everything that happened before, and it will be used for various decisions that, are, that will be biased. But the result itself is, is, is an answer uh, to the question using the, the mechanisms that, that we have created around this. And then if we don't like what we see, like, how, like what, what do we do about this? Or how do we correct this, this bias that we feel? Do we, do we tweak the data? 
do we tweak the algorithm or, or perhaps we tweak the estimator? So we, we, we change the question that we ask because very often the, the main problem that we run into with AI is we are asking the wrong questions or perhaps put it in a different way. We are asking questions that cannot be answered based on the data that we have. And of course, people ask questions all the time. So it is difficult to say, do not ask these questions. But we need to acknowledge when do we have data to answer those and then also understand when we don't have the data to answer those. And then we run, of course, into to various problems with the, the bias correction. So first of all, how do we know that the results are actually wrong? Um, so we don't like them, but, but how do we know that they're wrong? Perhaps they're not wrong. Perhaps they're absolutely correct in our system, just we don't like them. Uh, then uh, how do you know what to change? So when we change something with data or the algorithm, do we remove bias? Do we replace bias with our own? Are we adding more bias? And then once we do some corrections, we, we get to the question, how do we now know that the, the, the results are correct? So how do we now know that things are better? And, and perhaps the, the, the our impression or our understanding of what is correct and incorrect is itself biased. So we are kind of moving from one bias situation to a different bias. And then, of course, when the new bias is our bias, it doesn't feel like a bias anymore very often. And then we might be happy. But the, the impact of all of this to, to people around us, to societies, to the world, is now perhaps even bigger and, and, and worse than it would have been in, before. So we've run into these practical challenges. That's yep. a fair point. There, there, is a, there is a wider um, question uh, to be, uh, I think, that an elephant in the room, if you will. Um, the introduction of all these uh, all this advanced automation, you know, it's sold with the promise of freeing people up to do more value-adding work. And in some cases, those people don't have the skills necessary to do that value-adding work. Um, and, you know, we certainly see it in the news or through personal experience of family or friends where people have been let go from their jobs because they don't have those, those skills. But in my mind, that then creates a, a domino effect because now you are depriving somebody of an opportunity to be part of an economic system, to, part, to create wealth through economic transactions. So you, you are introducing AI to create economic efficiencies uh, cost reductions or, or uh, higher utilization of resources or, or, or what have you. But at the same time, you're displacing people who can, no longer have the money to spend to use some of the services that you're creating. Um, the, the, a couple of years ago, I, I heard a case of a, a, a government department. I won't name which one or where it was, but there was a government department that introduced RPA to... Um, as Kashyap was saying, uh, to, to, to scan uh, sort of certain forms and to uh, redact certain parts of the form and, and so on. Um, and it, you know, it was sold as we're not going to, we're not going to get rid of any jobs. This is going to free people up to do better jobs. But what ended up happening is that uh, I think 60% of the staff will then let go after a few months because the, the department realized they didn't need so many people on the payroll. But in my mind, that now says that Okay, several people are now no longer able to use or benefit from government services because you've deprived them of income. Therefore, the government has deprived itself of income tax and all these other sort of domino effects there as well. So, which is a long way of coming around to asking, do companies have an ethical or a moral implica uh, uh, obligation when they introduce these advanced capabilities into the organization to... Um, reskill people that might be displaced, technologically or economically displaced by that. Uh, Karthik, this is probably something that you've perhaps seen in some of the research that you've done in talking to many, many companies around the world and interacting with your peers in the academic community. Is this a question that comes up? Uh, if so, uh, what are the sort of patterns you're seeing? Yeah, I mean, we've spent a lot of time talking about uh, you know, say bias issues in, in AI, which are important, but, um, but I think the job in uh, related implications are 
equally, perhaps even more important. Um, and if we think about it, you know, we can think about the impact of AI on jobs at the individual level, at the societal level. And, you know, at the societal level, the history of technology suggests that technology has displaced jobs, but has created more jobs in return. And that's true with every technology in the past where, you know, you have industrial automation or you have, you know, some farm equipment and so on. And with all of them, there was always resistance from people whose jobs were lost. But over time, the way it's played out is that technology has created more jobs and it's displayed. The question is, is AI just another technology like what we have seen in the history of technology so far? It could be. We don't know for sure. Uh, there is a book uh, by Andrew McAfee and Eric Brynolfsson uh, called Race Against Machines, where they present some data and some arguments, obviously not conclusive evidence, but some arguments supported by data that suggest that AI is different from past technologies. That's its ability to displace jobs far exceeds its ability to create jobs. This may or may not be true, but they have enough evidence to kind of support that argument. And the point being that, you know, with, with AI, you're talking about automation of a different nature than in the past. You're talking about Moore's law. And you're talking about, in fact, what we've observed over the last years is something faster than Moore's law, which is that AI is improving at a rate that far exceeds Moore's law. Um, and, you know, a recent uh, report by Stanford said that AI capabilities double um, every uh, three months. And that's really, really related to our ability to process data and, and algorithms to improve and so on. And so I think there's a question at the societal level. And if you have that question at the societal level, then it brings up re regulatory and governance questions such as, do you need universal basic income? Um, and there are already some countries like in Scandinavian countries that are exploring universal basic income ideas. And I think this is going to be an important issue that we'll have to tackle. Um, at the individual level, I think you're exactly right, which is that uh, this argument that, hey, it frees up time for value added tasks is true for white collar work and not even all white collar work, some very creative white collar work where yes, we would love to have more time for creative activities uh, rather than you know pushing forms and so on. But a lot of jobs are not those. And for all of those displacing those, those jobs, they're not gonna find other jobs within a year or two years that easily. You've got to completely reskill them. So I think this requires a very fundamental assessment by our elected represented, representatives by everyone really to think about how education needs to change, how reskilling needs to happen. Uh, do you really need, uh, or, or maybe we need new forms of uh, training, vocational training, which people can get within three to six months that allow them to be deployed usefully in other aspects of say, government jobs or industry jobs and so on. And then finally, these questions around universal basic income, all of those have to be tackled. This is a, a juggernaut of an issue. So, um, yeah, I don't know the answers, but I'm just recapping the issues here for you. Yeah, I, I completely agree. We're, we're not here to, to necessarily figure out the answers. I think that's going to require uh, a huge society-wide global conversation uh, and, and debate. Uh, hopefully not without the sort of partisan politics, although that's probably reaching for too much. Um, but okay, just so I'd like to chime in on that. Just to see. So there is the theme of this value-added work. So that there is always this argument that people can do more higher value-added work. But at some point, there is no more value-added work to be done. So you just fall off the ladder. Stop climbing and fall off the ladder. That is one thing. So as an industry analyst, when I look at the state of the technologies, the AI technology in its raw form is doubling every three months, six months, etc. But the absorbent absorb capacity or the absorption capacity of the average enterprise, they're not in the position to implement these things just like that. So there is a phase of transition. The transition to a really AI-led economy is going to happen over a decade, over two decades, etc. So there is still that window of opportunity for us to make these course corrections, for us to get our uh, workforces uh, 
to be reskilled, retrained, and make sure that there isn't a wider or mass technological led unemployment. Uh, I mean, th there's just so much more to talk about here. I mean, even in just education and reskilling, I think there's a huge debate that needs to be had about whether we need to be training more generalists or, you know, from a uh, school, college, university, etc. Do we need just need more generalists that can switch from domain to domain easier than people who spend, you know, um, uh, five, six, ten years of their lives studying a particular field to achieve mastery in that field, only to see that field uh, diminish, uh, for example. There, there's just so many other things that I would love to have the time to unpack, but Harry is uh, sort of starting to warm up the orchestra to to, to conduct me off here. So um, I think we, we'll end it here. Uh, I would love to have you guys back uh, at some point to maybe carry on this discussion. And uh, to our audience, I'd say if, if you would love us to continue the discussion, please do send in your feedback and your ideas to ask at axelos.com. Uh, before we wrap up, uh, just a quick uh, check around if people want to get in touch with folks. Uh, so, Kashyap, where can, where can our audience find you? What's the best way to contact you? Kashyap Kumpila on LinkedIn. Okay. And we'll have the, the link in the show notes as well. Thank you. And we'll, we'll also uh, figure out a way to include a, a link to at least the Amazon uh, or if you have a webpage for your for your book, we'll, we'll include that as well. Karthik, um, where can people find you or, or get a hold of you if they want to uh, contact you about anything? Yeah, my website is uh, www.husanagar.com, Husanagar being my last name, where you can find my email address, links to my book, uh, the Amazon page. Um, and in addition, I'm on Twitter and LinkedIn, so you'd find those links there as well. Awesome. And uh, last but certainly not least, Kaimar, uh, if people want to get a hold of you, uh, say hello again, or ask you about your views on, on AI and ethics and philosophy. Uh, the, the best probably is, is Twitter. So I am moderately active on Twitter and it's easy to find me by my name. There's not too many, there's only one. Uh, and also you, you mentioned my, my Medium page. So sometimes I do write longer things there, there as well, but I do link to them from my Twitter site. So Twitter is probably the easiest and my DMs are open. So that's good as well. And, and that's uh, at Kaimar Karu on Twitter. Exactly, exactly. Great. Uh, and you can find me uh, either through askataxelos.com, uh, of course, LinkedIn. Uh, on Twitter, I'm at Blowboy, that's B-L-O-R-E-B-O-Y. Uh, so you can find me uh, at several several places. Uh, so it just leaves me to thank our lovely guests uh, for giving us their time today, uh, coming in from different parts of the world as well with different time zones. So thank you guys. And a big thank you again to Harry, our producer, for uh, helping put this together. Uh, so until next time, folks, uh, stay safe, wear a mask and wash your hands. Presented by Axelos.